I mean, the thing I don't understand, thinking back to when I was on planes, and I'll sound judgmental here and it's fine, is uh, beer at seven in the morning. Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 24 of Lean Whiskey. I'm Mark Graven. It's just me and Jamie today. Jamie, thanks for being here. Yeah, good to be here, Mark. Uh, it's been been a while, uh, just the two of us, and it's been a while. It feels like two years since our last episode anyway. So <laughs> Time flies uh, here. Glad to be here. It, it's. I mean, it's been great having other guests, but it's also fun. It's easier just to also chat. It's good to just do the one-on-one, just the two of us. Well, and this all started right with you and I talking about us hanging out late night, uh, find a find a good whiskey bar and talk shop over a glass and and uh, just carry that into a into a podcast. So uh, yeah, yeah kind of return to the return to the norm, return to the original vision. Yeah, I mean, someday we'll I, I'm sure someday we'll be able to record one in person. That would be yeah, that would be cool. We'll have to find a whiskey bar that'll let us, uh, you know, rent them out for a Tuesday night or some other slow yeah. night and sit there with a wall of whiskey behind us and, mm-hmm. and do a, do an episode, uh, in a, in a whiskey bar or each other's living rooms at some point. So yeah. we'll, we'll make one of those work. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I was thinking beforehand, like I always try to reemphasize you know, with all the different podcasts I'm hosting right now, like don't say the wrong podcast name, but <laughs> the fact that I've got, alcohol in front of me. Um, this, this is the only podcast that I drink during. Well, I, you know, I think we should measure, right? So we can't tell. I mean, I guess we could tell, you know, we don't know what's in your coffee mug when you're in other, other <laughs> podcasts. So, you know, we don't really know, but uh, if we, if we catch a lot of mistakes in one of your other, <laughs> other podcasts, then, then maybe we know. Right? I make so many, I make so many mistakes sober. It does, <laughs> I might make fewer mistakes <laughs> on this one. But um, so, hey, I'm going to suggest lean, uh-huh. this is lean whiskey, lean whiskey. Um, so I'm going to suggest actually we do an audible compared to the plan and go to the beverage and then talk about the something new that we're doing, because we we we've actually made something. And I know we, we don't want it to sit here. Well, I mean, it's not that it would go bad, but no, but we are anxious to get started with that. So we might as well jump jump into that. So. Our, our category, uh, which we haven't done anything like this before, is homemade whiskey cream, uh, known to more people more as, uh, uh, as, as Irish cream, uh, as, as Bailey's is the, the original, the inventor. Um, and there's, you know, really only from the, the 70s, and they, they figured out they could put cream and, and whiskey together along with some other things that they, they refined it. Uh, to make it work, and it's been been on shelves and been a favorite of mine for quite a long time. But uh, a, it's gotten more expensive than I think it it's worth, mm-hmm. and and b, it's not you know it's not that rich. It's it's good, but it can be better. And yeah. so we're making our own homemade whiskey creams today. Cause, yeah, because I mean that whiskey cream, it's a category, and I've had other whiskey creams. And we'll, we'll put a link to the origin story um, in the show notes. It's really more of a, a corporate invention 
along the lines of like 3M creating post-it notes more than it was like some plucky little startup that then got acquired. Oh, it, it has all the hallmarks of that. You know, they hired a consultant, the consultants <laughs> made something up, they put it in the lab, they refined it and figured it out. And it was all to market, you know, export Irish whiskey in a different package because they, they didn't have enough demand. Um, so it's as corporate as can get. Right. But, uh, yeah, that's okay. I don't, I don't, I don't mind as long as it's good. My, my, my computer comes from a corporation. My car comes from a corporation. I mean, corporations can make cool stuff. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely. But so, homemade Irish cream or homemade whiskey cream, I guess it's really only Irish cream if you put in Irish whiskey, but yeah. homemade whiskey cream, I will say in, in, in my first attempt, and, and I haven't tasted the second attempt yet is, is better than the original. So we both have we both have different uh, different versions. Mine's a little more of the norm, I'll say from a from a recipe standpoint. So um, and we'll we'll put the recipes of both up. Um, I'd say the only differences for mine, uh, compared to what most people might be expecting, you know, it has the coffee in there. It has vanilla, obviously the the we use the whipping cream and and the condensed. Um, condensed milk. Um, but, uh, I used rye for mine, uh, Sazerac rye, which, which I think adds, you know, just a little bite, uh, uh and not too much sweetness cause I don't yeah. want too much sweetness. And then the almond extract, mm -hmm. uh, which I can really taste not, not an overpowering way, but you could, I can tell the difference between this and another recipe is the almond. Yeah. Um, and it, and it's good really comes out comes out well yeah that rye would be fun with with that spice um, note kind of adding a little more to it so um, mine yeah, I mean so the one issue with some whiskey with 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 whiskey creams or even the homemade stuff is that the condensed milk um, has a good amount of sugar in it mm -hmm. and um, I've been trying to lose a little weight I've really been trying to stay away from sugar. Um, I'm no, I'm no Tom Brady when it comes to staying away from sugar, but for most of the month, then, you know, I'm down you know, like seven or eight pounds, but I'm trying to keep that up. And so I made, um, a low carb slash keto whiskey cream and it, it tastes good. Um, so same thing, it has cocoa powder. Well, so it's, so I, well, let me go back to the recipe. Um, I used a Florida whiskey, which I don't think we've ever talked about Florida whiskey on the podcast. No. This is a bottle I got when we used to live there. It's Palm Ridge Reserve Handmade Micro Batch Florida Whiskey. So it's not labeled as a bourbon or an or whatever, anything. I don't know the mash bill. It, it might not be 51% corn. It, it tastes to me like corn, rye, more of a even proportions instead of if okay. it was 51% something they would label it as um, something more specific than whiskey. So it's the whiskey, heavy cream, um, cocoa powder, instant espresso powder, um, vanilla extract and almond extract. And so okay. all together, like it takes, oh, and then um, a powdered um, artificial sweetener called Swerve, which in my experience, doesn't have um, like a real artificial sweetener 
aftertaste to it. So like what I'm tasting here, for one, it's not really sweet to begin with, but it's complex. There's mm-hmm. all these different flavors going on. The one thing I did do though, when I made it, it was really thick, like milkshake thick. And so I added some almond milk to it just to get the texture right. I should have added a little bit more whiskey because at this point, like it's, I mean, I can sort of, I can taste the whiskey, but it's, it's more of a slightly boozy milkshake perhaps, but that tastes good. That's not bad. I, I can definitely taste the, uh, the whiskey, um, now, now a lot of recipes are out there uh, promoting a particular brand of whiskey, but mm-hmm. honestly, that's just you know, <laughs> that's just personal choice. So, you know, I, I have several ryes on my shelf, but um, most of the others I prefer neat or or on ice, but generally just neat, and um, uh, more so than the Sazerac. So that was I wanted to choose a rye, but as far as using it as a mixer, that was both cheaper and and, and not one I enjoy straight as much as the others. Um, so that was kind of how I made my choice. And I wanted the, the, the slight edge that the, and spice that the, that the rye gives you. I think it's a good yeah. combination with the sweetness. Um, so how'd you choose the, the Palm Ridge bourbon? Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's like it, on its own, it's fine. It's young. There's no age statement on it. Um, it might be aged maybe just a year, you know, because, again, they're not calling it straight bourbon whiskey where there's, you know, a minimum age to it. Um, so, I mean, frankly, I tried it because I, I didn't mind wasting it if, it if this recipe turned out bad. Um, yep. You know, so it's a whiskey I liked good enough, but I wasn't um, I mean, like, I might I, I've got some Sazerac in, in the cabinet. You know, that's only a, like a twenty dollar bottle. It's really good. Yeah, it's it's, for the it's price. really quite affordable for for what you get because it is something I can drink neat and not complain about. So yeah, um, yeah, Sazerac Rye works pretty well. I I do have a cheaper whiskey that you know I, I I actually don't like drinking neat. I keep looking for reasons to mix it, but um, I, but I keep choosing other things that I prefer. But I didn't I didn't I was worried I'd mess up this batch because I was trying it. Yeah. You know, this is the first sip I've had of this batch, so. Um, was worried I'd, it'd be a bad batch, so I'll I maybe try trying that next just to see what it what it's like. But um, yeah, but yeah, the rye I, I I have to say using rye for whiskey cream is a, is a is a good choice. I think I'll go back to that for sure. Yeah. Now the the only Irish whiskey that I have here uh, is a Redbreast 15, which I thought was way too nice to make Irish cream out of. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I actually unusually don't have any Irish whiskey. Um, I keep waiting for a chance to get some yellow spot or, mm-hmm. uh, or red spot, uh, which are, which are a couple of my, my favorites. Um, uh, but I, yeah, I just, just seem to be out. So, um, the next time I do get a chance to get out and get to, uh, a whiskey store, I'll, yeah. I'll maybe look, for, look for some of that. Um, now, as far as recipes go, maybe I'll have to give yours give yours a shot. Um, I'm not generally, you know, changing my recipes on things from a weight loss standpoint. I'm just trying to do less of it. So, sure. uh, as of as of two days ago, I'm officially down 51 pounds. Um, Good but, for you. But it's more from cutting my drinking down to two days a week and 
increasing my exercising yeah. and a few other things, but, uh, yeah. uh, but this is, this is straight up bad for you. So, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing I'm okay. um, dry January, but yeah, I've been cutting back um, for sure. But I was going to say about Sazerac, um, a couple thoughts come to mind. One of which is lean related since it's lean whiskey. So Sazerac is the name of the parent company that owns Buffalo Trace in all of mm-hmm. the great lines of um, whiskeys, bourbons that come out of Buffalo Trace, including up through the Pappy Van Winkle um, line. And um, uh, so Buffalo Trace puts out a whiskey cream, a bourbon cream. Um, I, I forget right. what name they call it, but it comes from Buffalo Trace. I've tasted it there at the distillery. And then Sazerac and, and the, the Buffalo Trace Distillery actually has a full-time continuous improvement professional working there on site, the guy I know. It's awesome. And um, he, I, we had crossed paths because he was working for healthcare, in healthcare in Kentucky. And he came to a healthcare Kaizen workshop that Joe Schwartz and I did. And then there were healthcare cutbacks. This was way before COVID. This was a couple of years ago. And he um, ended up getting a job at um, Sazerac. So he's teaching Kaizen. I, I don't know that much about it to really worry about disclosing something I shouldn't. But um, yeah, I mean, they're teaching classic um, Kaizen, small continuous improvement to uh, frontline operators doing um, testing and running different things. So it's, uh, you know, they don't make cars either, but this Kaizen mindset yep. certainly applies. Awesome. That's really cool. So, um, yeah, I think yeah, it's the second uh, you know true lean, true lean whiskey. Uh, David Meyer, being yeah. the, the master distiller, uh, probably still gets top billing there. Um, and uh, I guess they can go, they can go next, and we're maybe third <laughs> since we're really just consuming but not making any whiskey. Yeah. Um, but our homemade homemade whiskey cream is a good a good other choice. If you don't want to make your own. I do recommend Five Farms. Um, it's a uh, it's 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 a smaller brand than Bailey's, and uh, um, besides the packaging being really neat, uh, it, it it I think it tastes better than Bailey's, and and uh, I think it's cheaper uh, if I remember correctly. But uh, yeah, if you still want to buy stuff off the shelf, I definitely recommend Five Farms as a as a choice. Yeah, and and there are alternatives out there. Um... So yeah, people can try figure out what they like. Um, can I show you one other thing that's whiskey related? Yeah, fire away. And, and, and this is going to seem like um, a brag, but dumb luck on my part out here in California. Um, Ralph's Grocery Store, it's part of Kroger, right? So it's part of big mega grocery store chain. And I was there maybe a month ago and I looked in their cabinet, their lock cabinet of you know, what kind of good whiskeys do they have? They actually had, believe it or not, Yamazaki 12-year Japanese whiskey. Like this is whiskey that is so so uh, difficult to find. Uh, even when I was in Japan two years ago, all the stores there have signs that say, we do not have Yamazaki. And the one store <laughs> in Osaka that did have Yamazaki was charging $250, which is well above standard retail. Ralph's, thank you. This is not an endorsement, but I'm just really happy at Ralph's. $79. And so I haven't, I haven't opened it yet because this is my 
um, hitting 10 pounds weight loss ah. motivation that when I hit 10, I can open this up and try it. So it kind of sits here. That's, that's, that's one motivation that I've set up. I kind of hoped I would have my own little whiskey news because uh, Pennsylvania, which all the liquor stores are still run by the state, um, had a lottery to buy Pappy. Um, and they had yeah. you know six different varieties, different years, you know, all the way up to 20 something. Um, and, and you were buying it at retail, uh, you know, up to 300 bucks a bottle or whatever the price is. Right. But it was just a lottery to see if you had a chance to win it. And mm -hmm. uh, there's quite a few bottles in it. I, I, I actually thought my chances were decent. And uh, I don't know for sure that I lost, but I didn't get a notification that I won. So I, I am assuming I did not uh, now, win the right to buy some happy. Now, when you enter that, are you saying I want I'm entering to for the right to buy this one specific one, or it's just kind of in this general category of like the Buffalo Trace antique collection, as they call it. Yeah, you could enter for each of the six different varieties they were selling. So okay. each each of the six different ages, and uh, so I entered all six. Uh, they would only give you one bottle if you won sure. in two different bottles, um, and that include households. They were pretty clear. You know, huh. if you if you and your wife both register yeah. to win, you can't do that. Um, <laughs> and of course, they they have the data. So, uh, and you had to do a lot. You know, you did tell them which store you'd be picking it up at and have all your credit card in their system ahead of time. And, um, but you know, this is, this is state run. It's so it's not like a, a, a local store that can kind of give their favorite customers the right to buy it. Uh, as a reward, they kind of have to do something a little more, uh, democratic, if you will. Yeah. Um, uh, or at least unbiased, um, as a state state run store. Yeah, the stores in Texas, some of them, I think the bigger chains tend to run it as a promotion where they want you to, to enter. And But then there are certainly some stores where it is based off of um, big spenders and connections and friendships. And, you know, so, yeah. so it goes. And that's OK. You know, I have no problem with a small store rewarding their best customers with the chance to buy something that's hard to get. That's yeah. good for them. But but for the uh, liquor stores, at least I don't know. Yeah, it probably, I don't know if it works different with the state stores. But I've heard when you've got these corporate conglomerates that the liquor stores, if they want access to the really high end stuff, they have to buy and move a boatload of, let's say, the cheap vodka that's part of their product line. So there are things like yeah. that that happen within. But you know, auto dealerships, I think, like you know, uh, Chevy dealers to get access to the top. Um, uh, Corvettes, they have to move a crap ton of pickup trucks and other product to get access to those Corvettes. It's really common mechanism. I mean, if, if Rolex, like if you want to steal sports watch Rolex, you know, some, some Mariner or a Daytona, really, really hard to find, super long waiting lists. But for stores, stores to get them, they got to sell a whole bunch of gold date justs and other watches that, uh, and keep moving the, the precious metals uh, to customers if they want their allotment of, of these hard to get uh, steel sports watches. So yeah, it's, it's not an uncommon practice in any, any uh, realm. Um, you, you do have to wonder to some degree, I mean, I, certainly they're making money off of it, but you know, if you have product that is so bad that you've got to force people to take it <laughs> and to push it, mm -hmm. you know, Maybe you should, you know, maybe you should make less money and 
and just sell better product. But that's just <laughs> <Yeah>. me. Uh, <laughs> that's if I were running the store. So. Yeah. Well, so, thanks. Uh, uh, thanks for so, doing this experiment. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great experiment. And uh, uh, I, I've had a chance to, to, to do something new. Always had some Baileys in the house. So uh, uh, started started switching it up first with the five farms and now with now with homemade, which I'm not sure I'll go back to anything else. I'll just keep keep doing yeah. this. It does keep. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't have to drink it the weekend you made it. So as long as you're refrigerated, mine's in a washed out orange juice bottle. So uh, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. take some at home, put it in the fridge, have it whenever you want. Put it in your coffee uh, on the weekend. Um, I, I would I would be one of those on a on a Delta flight that would <laughs> on flights home on flights home usually not almost never outbound. But uh, about an early morning flight, a coffee with Bailey's um, isn't a bad choice. And <laughs> I used to joke that tailgating and, and traveling are two excuses to drink in the morning. Um, I'm not sure if there's any other legitimate ones, but those are both seem to be accepted. The, so. the, uh, the Bailey's in the coffee uh, is a little more subtle than the Bloody Mary at 7.30 yeah, in Mary. the morning on a plane. That's, that's straight up... Uh, Straight up clear what it is, but but uh, but yeah, it's not uncommon for me to do that on my on my trips home in the early morning. Uh, yeah, you know, grab myself. Just flying was stressful enough, or uh, traveling was you know plenty of stress. So uh, nice little Bailey's in the coffee on the yeah. way home, the reward yeah. for your trip. Small little small little price to pay, if you will. Yeah, I mean the thing I don't understand. Thinking back to when I was on planes, and I'll sound judgmental here, and it's fine. Is uh, beer at seven in the morning? I'm I'm not a big beer drinker anyway, but not no, I haven't now. had a beer yet this year. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess again, tailgating uh, beer in the morning is pretty common. So I, I guess I guess if you're going to drink in the morning, then drink what you prefer. And if that happens to be beer, then that's that. But it yes, it it does. It, it does. Now, it's, it seems strange for us to be saying that hard alcohol is more acceptable at seven <laughs> in the morning than just the beer, but, yeah. but uh, you know, it's each to our I'm, own. We have I'm, our own standards. I'm judgmental and a hypocrite, so that's a yeah, that's not an unusual combination. <laughs> we're on a we're on a podcast. We can we can. Uh, it's our opinions, so um, yeah. uh, we offer them as such. Yeah. Um, so Jamie, so next uh, we're, we're going to talk about the thing we were going to use as more of an intro, but now that we've got our homemade whiskey cream in us, um, we're going to talk about something new that we're doing. So Jamie, if you want to go first. Yeah, I guess a couple of new things. Uh, so one is, I don't know if this is new, but it's new news, is uh, a little less than a week ago, I finished the first manuscript of my next book. Um by, by no means as prolific as you when it comes to writing, period, let alone books. But uh, uh, it's been 12 years since my last one. So the manuscript's done. Met with the illustrator this week, met with the editor this week, and uh, off, off and running. So uh, lots of work left to do. But having a manuscript done is uh, uh, a nice relief and, and yeah. uh, uh, a good chunk of last year on it. Um, I was planning on writing it anyway. Um, not sure the pandemic helped me write it, but uh, either way, it's uh, 
it's done and in the books if you as it is. So. Well, the manuscript is done and now there's a lot more to do, right? So you shared it on LinkedIn and I commented and a lot of people are congratulating you and, and, and there's still like bringing it to market. You still have more to do, right? Absolutely. A lot, lot more to do. Still literally undecided on a publisher or not a publisher. Uh, I really only have one publisher I'd probably work with. but um, And quite frankly, it doesn't even have a title yet. Um, the, the theme is around the people side of problem solving, uh, meaning the behaviors, the, the leadership, the coaching, the skills. So it's sort of tool agnostic. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big three fan for sure, but it's really not about the tools. And it it really applies to any tool. So it's really the people side of problem solving. And uh, so listeners are welcome to suggest titles. Doesn't have a title yet. Um, lots of work left to do, but uh, got several folks lined up to help and uh, uh, publication forthcoming. Great. Um, so let, let's, my, let's do it. Hmm? Yeah, I was going to say my other my other new, new thing this week. Uh, so well, so was, before uh, we get to that, I was just going to say, just to wrap up on the book, let, let's have a separate yeah. conversation with a drink or two, maybe not recorded or may, ha, may, hell, maybe a future episode about uh, self-publishing and you're already hiring people to to help you out. You're, you're maybe partway down that track. Yep, I am partway down that track and I have a lot more research to do. So I'm, I'm uh, uh, not very literate in that domain yet. Uh, my last book was published by Society of Manufacturing Engineers. They were good partners. They kind of came to me and said, hey, you want to do a book? So I didn't even shop around. They they said, hey, you want to do a book? I said, sure. And six <laughs> right. months later, we had a book. So uh, um, that's how lean hospitals happened. It was them approaching me. Hey, we need someone to write an introductory book about lean and healthcare. And hell, if you get that opportunity, you know, take it. But um, yeah, well, I'd, I'd be happy to talk through pros and cons with you and help you decide. Yeah, I'll, I'll share an interesting tidbit because a couple of people asked me about this just around writing. Cause you write, you know, like I said, you write even more than I do. And I always felt I was fairly prolific, although I've, I've taken a lot of the last five years off from significant writing. Um, but, but when I wrote the first book, I wanted, I wanted to be distraction free because I, you know, when I'm in my office or when I have the internet on or whatever, it's like other things happen. I just, I, I need like hours of getting into a flow and a rhythm. So when I wrote my first book, I would actually go to Starbucks because they didn't have Wi-Fi, <laughs> yeah. and, and so I could sit there without any disturbances, without any email inter- interruptions and get a lot of writing done for several hours. So that's, that's a far cry from what Starbucks is today. Uh, but I went to Starbucks specifically because they did not have Wi-Fi. Uh, and so this time, since I didn't have a lot of places I could go, I actually went up to the, the Poconos, the mountains mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania and, and did most of the writing there, or probably 95% of the writing up in the, up in the mountains so that I would be more distraction free several days blocked off at a time. So there, there, there's so, probably something to be said for putting your device in airplane mode or turning off Wi-Fi for that good focused yep. writing. Absolutely. Um, I did write a lot of it on Google Docs, which in retrospect probably was it's, uh, was was a mistake, but uh, mm. yeah, is what it is, so. So, well, th- this um, isn't my favorite mistake, but why? <laughs> it's yeah. probably not a favorite, but why why'd you think why do you think that was a mistake? I wrote my last book in Google Docs. I thought it was good. Well, just cuz I was online, right? I wasn't the, to be in Google Docs, I mm. wasn't in offline. I was usually in live mode and so it was always backed up and mm. I know I was again 
workarounds around all of that. But uh, right. I, the, the internet wasn't off. The, the tabs with my email were closed, but uh, yeah. the internet wasn't fully off. And, and uh, so I uh, probably could have still done better. But uh, uh, like I said, got it done one way or the other. So we're all good. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to thought before we'll get to your other new thing. Um, you can either on YouTube or I think even through the music services, if, if you want that coffee shop background noise, you can bring that into your home, actually, if that helps you get into that zone. Yeah, no, I've done I've done all sorts of background noises from nature sounds to to coffee shops. And, and then my, my favorite is a uh, like a three hour loop YouTube video of an ancient library or something like that. It's a crackling mm-hmm. fireplace, and lightning out the window and a little thunder. And, um, and so, yeah, set the mood. I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll do some of that. Or I also worked my way through uh, a playlist of the top 50 saxophone uh, jazz musicians. Um, so kind of one by one through all 50 on a list. I forget where I got the list, but yeah. Worked my way through at least the top ten songs from each of those fifty artists uh, as as part of my background music. So that was fun too. Very cool. Well, congratulations again on on that significant book milestone. Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll talk more about the content coming up, but uh, yeah, uh, it's another another time, another place. So yeah, so so then my other my other experiment uh, is is uh, it's actually over on my my office. Um, I, we had a, um, a small evergreen that uh, was gifted to us. One of my only three social engagements since the pandemic started, which was uh, all three were outdoors at, at a distance. But uh, they brought over this little evergreen and a, a potted evergreen. And it was starting to get a little big, where it's the point where it's like, all right, I'm going to have to grow this until the spring and then go outside and plant it. Mm-hmm. Uh but a practice I was always fascinated by was bonsai. So I mm-hmm. thought, let me give that a shot. So I watched multiple videos, um, uh, bought a, a wire kit, a special wire kit for bonsai. I did not go as far as getting the special pots or anything else because this is a first experiment. And I, I converted this bush to a, to a first effort bonsai. Wow. Um, so Way you, you too gotta- early to see how it turns out, but. You got to run and go get it real quick for those who are watching on YouTube. Like we can hang on. All right. We'll, we'll do that. That's, that's fair <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll edit the, uh, the blank space maybe out of the um, audio podcast. Um, or I'll just put in a blatant plug for uh, my favorite mistake if people are looking for another new podcast to listen to. Okay. Show, show us your, your work here, Jamie. Wow. The sparkly, the sparkly is the wire, and the wire has to sit there for four to twelve months to really reshape it. But this was really a bush that was, you know, almost getting to be like that. Uh, five different uh, trunk branches. So there, uh, you know, as bonsai works, a lot of trimming goes in and a lot of shaping goes in. Um, so I probably lost about a third of the bush at least in in trimming, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll we'll see how this. We'll see how this turns out. So uh, it's going to need to sit for a while. Um, and if I don't, if I don't kill it, um, then we'll we'll see. Then maybe I'll I'll try different different varieties and uh, and do a few more. I don't I don't want enough bonsais that I'm clipping them every week. But uh, um, 
having two or three that I clip every few months is, is about the right sized hobby for me. So you don't have to play, tweak, work at it, play with it, tweak it every single day. No, no, no. And, 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 uh, you do have to water it, but it's in my office. And like when I was traveling, of course, that was impossible. Uh, but now that I'm working from home, not too hard to remember to water it at least every other day. So I, um, not, not terribly hard. I mean, I, I, since I'm home and I don't have to water them that much and they're probably overdue for it. Um, I have two little real tiny cacti on my desk. Nice. There's another one that died, so I can't even keep. Um, well, my, my daughter alive. just went. Daughter just went back to college yesterday, and she she uh, uh, she bought herself four four small cacti and and brought them with her, and and uh, she she doesn't have a chance to leave her room much because not a, a, quite a quite a lot of restrictions yeah. on campus. So uh, yeah. should should be able to monitor and take care of them uh, since her. Her office and bedroom and dining room are kind of all the same rooms. So. Yeah. I do have some fairly realistic plastic succulents over here on this other desk that I think my wife bought. So maybe I'll just stick to that. But good for you learning, a uh, learning a new skill here. Yeah, I, 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 watched, I watched several videos. I didn't, you know, read books or take a course yet. But if I, if, I, if I went a little further, I'd probably at least take a video course and give it a shot. Um, and, you know, uh, learn, I don't want to, I don't need mastery, but enough to, to, to be, su uh, sufficient at it. Um, so speaking of courses, uh, you, you have some, uh, some fun news too. Yeah. I'm, I'm taking a course, um, not for mastery per se, definitely not a career direction change, but just for something interesting to do and, and for the learning and, and why not. So I'm taking there. So there's an organization called WSET, the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. And so I am going through right now, I'm in the middle of it. I'm after, this is after week three out of five, um, what they call their level two spirits course. Um, and so I, you, you can skip level one because um, looking at the curriculum for level one, I'm like, okay, I, th I don't think I would have learned a whole lot there. But with the level mm -hmm. two course, I'm, I'm, I am learning. And um, so you know, I've learned, like last week, I've learned a lot about tequila and mezcal, which is probably maybe a close, not close second, but after whiskey, I, I like tequila, sip, good sipping tequila and a aged Añejo uh, tequila is not too, I mean, it's, it's different flavor, but the character can be like um, a whiskey. And, you know, I've learned more about the mechanics of um, distilling. And again, I'm not going to go like David Meyer and start a distillery, but just learning more of the detail of how a column still works, for example. Um, so I'm kind of just doing it for the fun and, uh, you know, go past the certification. It's sort of like having a whatever belt, Six Sigma belt. Some people get that certification and they maybe don't use it. That might be the same with me and this, but um, you know, I'm doing a whiskey podcast. Why not do um, some spirits education? There, There is a bourbon specialist course um, that I might, I don't know, maybe I'll take, or my wife will say, okay, stop spending money on this whiskey education and go write another book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure anything that keeps you busy um, <laughs> is all good. 
if it was a whiskey specific course, I'd probably, I mean, that'd be the, 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 the perfect middle for me. Cause I, I do, I, I still generally prefer scotch over bourbon. I like, I like all whiskeys, but you know, if I had to limit myself to one, it would probably be scotch. Um, uh, and, and I don't really drink really any vodka or, or yeah. anything like that, but, um, I pretty limited, Generally, it's either wine or wine or whiskey is 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 my limits. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's really fascinating to to get that education and and I know they target like store owners and and uh, or or store bartenders uh, and bartenders and people that are basically in the trade of of plying uh, spirits. Um, so, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, knowing what's what, knowing what's real and and what's just marketing and Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'll say not, not being taken, knowing as much as your bartender, uh, is, yeah. is probably a, a worthwhile thing to, to do and, and just fun. Right. Cause it's, I, I've, I've watched, I've watched videos and, and documentaries and others about, about scotch usually, but, uh, it, it is fun to hear the history and understand all the differences and, yeah. um, and especially whiskey, right? Because vodka, even if you go to the, the, the book, what I, I don't know what the book's called, but the book that lays out the standards for what you can call what, you know, vodka is like three lines and whiskey is like 47 pages. It's often more um, a matter of law and it depends on where you are. Right. But quite quite complex. Uh, yeah. And so when you open it up to all spirits, it's quite quite the complex uh uh, uh, yeah. body. So you're halfway through. So when do you, when do you expect to finish? Well, there'll be two more weeks of, um, the class. It's an online class, of course, and then there'll be an online exam. Um, so maybe by the time we do our next episode, like I won't be able, I don't think I can call myself a spirit sommelier. Like the WSET is one of the two organizations that trains and certifies wine psalms. Um, you know, I've okay. got a friend of mine who is a, um, advanced sommelier through it's like the world court organization. Like he's one step away from this, the, that really rarefied air of being a master song. There's only hundreds right. of them in the right. world. And then WSET has a, a wine track and then yeah, I'm doing the spirits track, but um, just, yeah, why not? We'll see. Why not? Bragging rights, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, Thanks. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to, when you're, when you're finished here, how the exam went and, uh, and, and maybe your top takeaways, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll try to wrap those up as well. So, yeah, I mean, two, um, two, just two quick points. It's reinforced, even trying to try a good one that's well-regarded. Like I just, I do not like rum. It's just a preference thing. Um, mm-hmm. I had grappa for the first time. Okay. And that's distilled from the leftover skins of, um, wine grapes in uh, in Italy. Yeah. Um, Grappa is kind of an interesting digestive. So that that's kind of expanding yeah, I've, horizons. Yeah, I have well. had it a few times, usually while I'm in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I have had that a few times. Um, and and I think it's definitely an acquired taste. Uh, um, I, I didn't dislike it, but uh, it wasn't something I was looking to order either. All right. So we've talked whiskey. We've talked um, 
little bit about Lean, thinking about Sazerac, but we're going to shift here more into the hardcore. Let's talk about Lean Realm, if you want to help tee this up, Jamie. Yeah, yeah. It took us a little while, um, but that's okay. It's, it's, the, it's a relaxed the, the, podcast. I mean, yeah. Relaxed podcast. It's, uh, I think we're pretty clear about this. We're recording this on a Sunday night. It's uh, several inches of snow outside. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have a fireplace in, in my office, but if I did, yeah. it would be on. Um, so, uh, so setting the mood. So, yeah, as far as the topic in the news, we wanted to talk about the vaccination process. We're really just underway and, and where lean intersects with that. Um, so, so John Miller, uh, our, our, our good friend and, mm-hmm. and a longtime lean author, uh, lean, lean, uh, uh, blogger, uh, does not quite as, as early as you, but, uh, you know, very early in terms to the game for sure. Mm-hmm. But he wrote, yeah. a, he wrote a blog post, How to Vaccinate 100 Million uh, uh, People in 100 Days. Um, there's other stuff we'll, we'll, we'll talk about as we go. Um, and so just talk about the intersection with lean and the vaccine process. Uh, I did want to kind of start with you know, what I consider a warning with any topic like this. As I read articles about any of these topics, um, I, I think the lean community can get a little... Uh, a little edgy, uh, a little judgy um, hmm. with some of this. So a favorite old quote of mine from Dwight Eisenhower is, uh, and I just, I've always loved this quote. I love this it, quote. Farming, this is a great one. Farming looks mighty easy when your plow is a pencil and you're a thousand miles from the cornfield. Um, so we'll do our best not to, not to pass too much judgment on, on those in charge at any level. Hmm. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk a bit about um, how do you take lean thinking into such a complex and messy problem? Um, and, and you've been posting several articles on this topic over the, mm-hmm. on LinkedIn over the past several days. I don't know if it's just because they're out or because you're, you're ramping up for our discussion. But it's um, uh, a topic what are I'm your, trying to keep up with. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It's mo- and then it is moving fast and actually talking to a hospital. This week that I'm advising, you know, they're learning every day, and that's that's that to me is the is the you know almost the number one takeaway is that they are learning every day. Yeah, but, that's good. Well, that yeah. that culture of continuous improvement isn't always there, right? So a lot of times people would have a process forced on them, and there's no mechanism for feedback and kaizen and improvement. Thankfully, you know, there are some hospitals that I've seen share webinars that they participated in. Um, a panel discussion that I moderated recently. We'll we'll link to all this in the show notes. There are some organizations that are following, like John Miller wrote about in his post, basically using you know a three P process. They're actually intentionally designing the process. They are designing the work, and that's that's great to see. Um, and you know they're they're um, you know I, I did a podcast with some leaders from Mount Sinai Morningside in New York City, they talked about in their language, dress rehearsals of their process before patients ever came in. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's it's like, you know, I think in general, I've always said, you know, the, the ability to Kaizen is not an excuse for not putting time into designing a good process, but nobody ever designs mm-hmm. a perfect process, which is why you need Kaizen. So there are bright spots of 
organizations, I think, doing some really good process improvement work when, when they already have that foundation of lean thinking in place. But we know that's not universal. Yep. Yeah. And John talked about that around, you know, he uses the, the traditional lean term of, of 3P, production pre- preparation process. Um, you know, I remember seeing a couple of weeks ago, maybe a few weeks ago, a segment on on the news, I believe, about a hospital that, you know, they had their tent up, they had their stations set up, and they were physically walking through the process, mm-hmm. right? Similar to a dress re- rehearsal. And, and the whole idea of that process is you don't know what you're going to face until you face it. So try to face it with as much reality as possible, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you, you can't, well, you can, I'll let me talk about that in a second, but it's never going to be as real as reality. Um, but if you bring in, if you bring in the nurses or, or whoever's going to administer the, the shots, if you, if you bring in imaginary patients and have them walk through the process um, as if they were getting a shot, you, you start to say, well, geez, I don't have what I need at my workstation or mm-hmm. the flow isn't right. Or now, now this only works if, if you were, if you're really observing for the intent of improvement, um, but if you have that culture already, then this sort of physical manifestation of a process, a future process, is a great way to really mm-hmm. field test what you intend to do. Yeah, and and there are things that can be worked through, um, like Salem Health. Um, I'll make sure we link to this as well had um, a video that they shared that walked through their whole process. It was like a big convention center type open room. And there are multiple steps in the process. And there were things that we could look at, um, you know, looking at the different steps. So you have working backward, um, you know, before the patient is sent home, they have to be observed for 15 or 30 minutes, depending on whether they have a history of allergies or not. And then, you know, there's paperwork and a card and and documentation. Then there's the injection. And then there's the preparation of the syringe. And then there's the flow and the supply chain of the vaccine itself. And so you can look at these different steps and, and look at, you know, how long does it take to dilute the vaccine and draw it into a syringe and label it with the lot number and, and have it ready to go? that's a pretty predictable, repeatable process. And then the time it takes to prep and do the injection would be a predictable, repeatable process. So you could figure out, you know, how many syringe prep stations do you need to flow vaccine out to all of the different injection stations? That could be all designed. And then there's the, the flow of supplies of um, Band-Aids and um, gloves and other things. Like in the one video... They talked about a process where I was I was trying not to be judgmental. I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anybody. They said, well, when we run out of something, we hold up this blue card and a runner brings us more. And I'm like, we the the, the trigger for the reorder should be before you run out. Like, and and actually, you know, at this hospital, I know a former Toyota person who is coaching them, they are working on setting up a two-bin Kanban system. So again, like to be fair, sometimes you've got to set up the basics. And then you can refine mm-hmm. that process and make sure you don't have um, tables that are cluttered and overflowing with stuff. But, you know, gloves and Band-Aids, those are so inexpensive and so small. I would err on the side of a little too much inventory instead of mm-hmm. trying to do like this zero inventory just in time model. 
Well, and, and that's, you know, yeah, I, I certainly, you can imagine if, if we hear a, uh, a news story that says we can't give more shots because there's a Band-Aid shortage, right? Um, and you start to, start to hear the, the wrong shortages in the, in, in, the, in the process. Well, so actually I heard a podcast with continuous improvement people from a hospital that said at one point they had to stop the flow of vaccination because they ran out of Band-Aids. Yeah. And I've stepped back and question, like of all the times I've had a flu shot, I mean, is the Band-Aid really necessary or is that over-processing and is that just habit? I mean, yeah, and, and and could you could you just save it for those that are bleeders, right? So yeah, uh, and just keep going, and you know, okay, if you're bleeding, just keep holding your arm because you got to sit there for 15 minutes anyway. Yeah. Um, but it 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 does, you know, I, I think the two the two problems that make those issues more complex is that, um, you know, if you could run a prototype vaccination center in in 3P mode. Mm -hmm. and then distribute the model across the country, that'd be one thing. But the number of organizations that we need uh, to actually administer the program is, is pretty massive, right? Because we, you, you, you have, you know, first, a lot of them went through hospitals where hospitals are busy right? dealing with actual COVID cases. Um, quite frankly, probably one of the worst organizations to give vaccines, given their their current loading mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, from a from a resource standpoint, you have uh, county health agencies in Pennsylvania. A lot is done through the county health departments. Not every county in Pennsylvania has a health department, um, hmm. so wow. so so there they're they're run differently uh, from from that regard. And some cases the hospitals are stepping up and doing more. Some cases they're not. Uh, we, we saw in West Virginia where they've done very well. They've they've relied less on, say, the CVSs and more on on mm -hmm. on local pharmacists, um, uh, community pharmacists. So the 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 the, the distribution of, of models of how to do this is so vast that, you know, it really requires a combination of system level improvements. Uh, best practices at a national level and then local Kaizen local. for your mm -hmm. own particular circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I think of this in terms of the flow of vaccine from the producers all the way to the patient. There's the flow of staff. How do you make sure you have enough people? And, and this often means being creative, like bringing in retirees or medical students or I mean, I get my flu shot from a pharmacist. I mean, it doesn't have to be a nurse. You mm -hmm. can bring in veterinarians or the National Guard or you know wh whatever you, whatever you have. Um, and then there's the the flow of patients. How do you get the right patient to the right place? And then there's maybe flow of supplies. But right now, would, as we record this on on January 31st, it seems like we are very much in a supply constrained mode, uh, meaning the vaccine supply. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and all the local Kaizen in the world won't mean much um, if, if, if we can't even get the vaccine to people. Um, and, and again, following the, the, the Ike quote, I, I don't want to uh, try to guess at, at root cause. Um, but, but certainly, you know, I don't want to say it's inexcusable, it's the wrong word, but 
Uh, you know, all the local Kaizen in the world won't, won't mean much if they can't get vaccines. Um, and it seems like at a, at a policy level, um, both local and federal, we've, we've, we've removed whatever constraints were there. It's, it's, there's other factors at play. I would add another flow, which is the data flow. Um, yeah. Which, which is certainly secondary, but at the same time, you know, if you look at where we are, is, is data half of our problem? And, and the fact that the data, you know, if you have every pharmacist, every hospital, every outsourced agency from a, a local county health department running the process, how on earth do you expect your data to be accurate without a really, really well-designed system, uh, which, which we don't have for sure. And, um, and so then how do you make good decisions if you can't trust your own, not just trust your own data, but then actually not use it to effectively make decisions. So imagine a pull system based on actual consumption. Well, if the data is no good, then you can't have a pull system. Yeah. Well, there, there's, um, there's supply chain questions, there's customer demand questions, and there's capacity questions. So I think, you know, the one thing, you know, in John Miller's analysis, as much as I respect John, um, and, and there's a lot of great stuff in that post. I mean, I did not include the concept of tack time in the first edition of Lean Hospitals because it, it's just, it gets complicated. So there's three, what, 350 million people in the United States, roughly. And um, so how do you come up with a demand rate tack time when we might all say, even bad, bad assumption, I know we won't all say, but let's assume 350 million people say, yes, I want the vaccine tomorrow. Do we somehow, do we calculate the tack time based off of that? Well, probably not. So we have to look at the supply picture of how many doses can be provided per day, per week. And I think we just need to have things in balance. And, you know, I read about um, one hospital that had done, they were on a pace of delivering 2000 doses a day. So there is a capacity, work capacity, supply capacity. They proved that was possible. And then suddenly, oh, now you're only getting 200 doses a day. So part of me says like, well, why'd they ramp up to that capacity of 2000 a day? when they could have leveled it out and done 500 a day, but giving vaccines earlier is better than waiting. So can we level load it? Is this more like when I worked at Dell computer, when we would have big spikes in demand and it was costly to hold capacity to respond to those spikes in demand, but that was the Dell strategy. It was not a level loading um, strategy. So, you know, there's all these different dynamics and I don't think we can say, well, there is a, single lean solution, I think we need to figure out what makes sense in these circumstances. Right. And I'd say, you know, first is, is you have to pick the right metrics that matter. Right. So I think the efficiency of the system is, is, you know, it it does matter just because, you know, we only have so many resources to go around and and so we have to make the most of them, but it doesn't matter nearly as much as getting the job done. And, and so, uh, you know, if, if, yeah, we, we vaccinate a whole bunch extra people faster and sooner, and then we have resources standing around kind of like who cares, uh, cause we got the job done. You know, we're talking about, you know, a trillion dollar aid package. Um, 
well, if, if, if we got the job done with COVID, we wouldn't need as much of an aid package, right? So, so to me, it's much more about effectiveness over efficiency. Um, yeah. But the other thing this points to then, to your, to your point around the complexity is, you know, the idea that there's a single problem to solve, like it's a supply problem or it's a tack time mm-hmm. problem or it's a, right? It's, it's all right. of those, right? right. It's all, it, at every level, at the system level, at the federal system level, at the state system level, at the hospital system level, the supply chain level, at the data level, at the, the, the actual needle and arm level, you, you need you, you need your best practices. You need your continuous improvement happening there at, at every one of those levels. And and, you know, some people will say, well, just, you know, find the bottleneck and solve that. But it's not that when there's enough variation in a system like that, you know, you, you need it at every level. Um, now, I think an interesting correlation might be the rate of learning and sharing that happened with the disease itself. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, it took months and months and months. But if you look at how much was shared and studied um, across hospitals, how to treat protocol, yep. bedside protocol, medical protocol, et cetera, from hospital to hospital, from doctor to doctor, from country to country, from March through, you know, the fall. till so we started to sort of, you know, really start to narrow in on, on best practices. A ton of progress was made. Yeah. Um, now that was a long time. That was a long, you know, I, I hope it does. I hope we can do even better with this, but I do have hope that, best practices will spread in the same sense that once we prove to ourselves, we can do certain things, we will start to do those things. Right. Well, so there's been so much learning. Um, Again, this is where I try not to be judgmental when it comes to the design of the vaccine delivery process. Like we've known for at least nine months that this day was coming, right? Mm -hmm. So when we've got these supply constraints, if you're only getting 200 doses a day, today is the day to design a process that can deliver 2,000 locally if you had the supply. And if not 2,000, why not 4,000? Um, and so, you know, there, there's that opportunity to not just wait and react, but to be proactive and to plan and to design. But, you know, you look at the different measures, um, you know, John talked about setting up different hubs and you know, there, there, I think, you know, if, if, if you're the only metric you were trying to hit was um, vaccinating the highest number of people, you would set up in the largest cities around the country. But then that raises issues around equity. Um, what about people in small towns? Do they deserve the vaccine just the same? There are questions and concerns about, um, you know, uh, communities, uh, you know, people of color not getting as much access um, to the vaccine. And so we, we have to take those societal questions into account as well. So it really is, I mean, it's a multidimensional problem. I'm thinking as an industrial engineer, there's no single variable that we're trying to optimize upon here. There are many, many mm-hmm. different objectives, um, including speed, including who do you vaccinate first in a way that makes the most sense for society and as fairest to people. There's the questions of equity. Um, there's, there's, it, it, it's a complicated problem. So I'm looking forward to a day and I'm trying to figure out how to volunteer even with the county health department 
um, here in Los Angeles. If okay, now the problem is we have a glut of vaccine and we can't vaccinate enough people a day. Like I, I think the lean skill set is is particularly um, you know able to contribute to that problem. But one other thought I'll share here is there there are supply chain visibility problems where there are millions of doses literally unaccounted for right now. Like the federal government under the past administration sent, they know how many they've sent out to the states. And then there's not much visibility until the federal government starts getting reports back of how many vaccinations have actually been given. And so I've, mm-hmm. I saw a report today in the new administration. And again, this isn't political. This is just managerial skill or what lack thereof. But the new administration has people like literally picking up the phone and calling and trying to find out how much vaccine do you have and and trying to piece together this supply chain visibility. I mean, 20 years ago when I worked at Dell Computer, there was far better visibility into the supply chain of PC components and exactly where those PCs were. If we sent an order of 10,000 computers to the U.S. Navy, Somebody could tell you exactly where those computers were, I'm sure, at every cha- point in the chain until they got to somebody's desk. Mm-hmm. Now, we have, you know, we look at, uh, um, you know, how many different locations we're going to, right? Just just the county I live in right now has probably got 40 different locations that has received vaccine at one level or the other. And, um, you know, I don't know about you, but anytime I receive something from FedEx, um, you know, I'm left, I'm left wondering for certain data, like, oh, your, your shipment will arrive today. Well, it's in Ohio still. How's it going to arrive today? It's not going to arrive yeah. today. He stopped telling me that. So, um, so yeah, we, 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 we definitely have, and that goes back to my data point, right? The, the mm-hmm. flow of data. Right. Um, are, are we missing vaccines or are we missing data about the vaccines? I think it's, more likely, based on the numbers we're talking about, that we're missing data more than we're actually missing vaccines um, well, at that but, number, at that kind of volume. Yeah. But think from a planning perspective, I'll, I'll draw a parallel to the auto industry. So, you know, Jamie, when you were, um, you know, at, uh, at Chrysler, you knew how many cars you could build a day. But if I were to tell you, Jamie, you need to figure out this next week's plan in terms of um, staffing and people. Um, I don't know how many engines you're going to get. So plan to build effectively and efficiently. So this is the situation the hospitals are in. They, they're not getting advanced visibility generally. I've heard enough of them complain about, we don't know how much vaccine is showing up. So how can you coordinate right. the flow of people in terms of scheduling and prioritizing and the flow of staff? Because you don't want to bring people in to staff up and sit around this basically empty convention center. No, there's ways to design that system too. Right now. I'm not saying that this this is a good situation, right? But I mean, if if you look at a utility that deals with a storm outage or um, heck every, every, every County that right now is dealing with this nor'easter going through Mm -hmm. uh, the mid Atlantic um, or uh, you know, military reacting to whatever happens next that they can't predict, right? There's there's ways to pre- plan for an unpredictable environment, and 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 so it's like, okay, you're all on call, and when we get the vaccine, your phone's going to ring with this notice, and you show up, yeah. right? I'm not saying it's easy, right? I'm just saying 
you can plan, you can build a system to accommodate right. almost anything predictably if, if, you, if you put the effort into the planning and the design and the time to really do this. We, we knew we knew 80% of what we needed to know to plan last summer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we didn't know everything about which vaccine would be first. We didn't know it would be Moderna or Pfizer and the, we'd have, you know, we'd have to deal the refrigeration issue is, does not seem to be the limiting issue, but is a, is an issue for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, uh, you know, certainly, you know, we didn't know everything, but that's when, that's when cases were the lowest. That was the perfect time to be planning. Right. right. Every hospital. And it's not just hospitals. Right. It's it's a lot of different organizations. Uh, most counties, it sounds like or many counties are using the same third party agencies they're using to run testing centers. They're going to use to run the vaccine program because they're already set up and they're, they're set up at that volume. And I don't know what happens to testing in the meantime. That's a, that's a concern um, of, you know, we have months and months and months, if not a year of this, and, and if we lose our testing capacity uh, in order to get vaccines. I'm not sure that's an awesome trade-off, but we did have time to plan for a whole bunch of things, right? And, and that's the opportunity to say, what is the system and, yeah. and who's in charge of it, right? Now, now hospitals, as well as the, the, pharma, the, the pharmaceutical companies are, are busy but this is the same continuous improvement advice I give to every organization. They'll say, oh, we're, we can't deal with that. We're busy inventing and ramping up the new vaccine. Well, that's great. But that's 20%. You know, if you look at Pfizer, how many, what percentage of the company was involved in actually that? No more than 20% at, at the highest, for sure. Right? They were, and, and, and the executive level, sure, top executives more focused on, on getting the vaccine ready and approved and all those sorts of things. But, but what are these resources over here doing, right? Uh, can they be pulled in to focus on doing the work ahead of when the need is? That's the opportunity that uh, too often seems to have been missed. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this is such a complex, um, complicated issue. We, we could talk about this for a full work day. You know, we did, the panel discussion, 90 minutes, that could have been an eight hour panel discussion. We had two people from UMass Memorial Healthcare in Massachusetts. We had somebody from uh, a senior care organization in Pennsylvania, and we had um, the Secretary of Health and Human Resources from uh, Virginia um, talking about that. And we, we, we'll put a link to that and other resources in the show notes. Um, it's it's a sticky, complicated problem. There there you know are there are good examples out there of I guess you know the thought I would add maybe to wrap it up is I've heard many stories of the organizations that have been working for years to build a quote unquote lean culture or a culture of continuous improvement. They are the ones best positioned to iterate, to learn, well to plan, to learn, to iterate, to engage their people. Um, you know there are great success stories out there. Um, you know, and there's also opportunity to share lessons learned and quote unquote best practices, not just to copy, but maybe to adopt and adapt. And the team at Kinexus and uh, the people at Valley Capture, who I also work with, we're 
Um, even tomorrow, we're going to continue this discussion of how do we put together you know, some sort of forum for healthcare organizations to, um, to you know, kind of in real time share notes with each other. Some of that is um, just the willingness to do so. Some of that's technology. We're trying to figure out some of those things. Yeah, and, and that's what I'm hoping to see more of is, you know, these little, you know, some of them are big problems that have to be solved. Some of them are small problems, but much more sharing of what people are doing. You know, if you if you look at, you know, you you and I both travel a bunch, or at least we both used to. Used to. And, and a small little thing of a, a TSA agent that works his way up the line and tells everybody what they need to know about getting ready for the, the conveyor, right? Yeah. That, that one little step, which isn't a policy, it isn't a process, it's just what some TSA agents decide to do because they know it makes the process better. And I could imagine the same thing happens here where people get up to the station and they, like, it takes them 10 minutes to get their sleeve up because they didn't wear the right shirt. And if they would have yeah. just had five minutes more notice, they yeah. could have prepped themselves. But yeah. what yeah. I'm hoping for is, you know, a thousand YouTube videos of healthcare practitioners and other logistical agencies sharing their best practices as openly as possible so that, you know, adoption, at least at the micro level of improvement, uh, goes up. I, I really do believe, just if you look at the rate at which we learned how to deal with the, uh, the, the virus itself, whether, whether, personal practice or at the hospital and how to treat it. So much was learned and so much was shared through places like YouTube. Yeah. I'm hoping the same things will happen here. Yeah. One, one other thought now um, you mentioned coming out and, and dealing with a line. Um, there was a story, gosh, I forget what state it was, but um, if you've ever gone through a Chick-fil-A drive through or in and out burger, same way, when that line gets long, they don't let you get all the way up to the uh, microphone box that you traditionally order from. They bring people out with tablets and they take the order further in the line. And man, that line flows because they at some point it was somebody's Kaizen of like, we need to get out of the chicken sandwich making building and go take mm -hmm. orders further upstream. And in and out is really good about managing that. But there was a story, I think, of some county that had this huge traffic problem of cars lined up to come in for vaccination. And literally, like a Chick-fil-A store manager came in yeah. and started helping manage some of that process. So there are lessons to learn, not just from hospital to hospital, but from your community and people who have operations expertise. Um, I hope there's more opportunities to share and, and help out like that. You've got it. I think... I think we will see more of that, and uh, I do have confidence in our ability to, to do more fixing than finger pointing, um, and, and things will get better, but we do have a long way yeah. to go. Well, so we'll keep at it. We can probably talk about it in the next episode if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We could talk about it for quite a while. So uh, ready to start heading towards wrap-up? Yeah, let's 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 do a fun question. I mean, I think vaccine talk is interesting, but we've got a fun topic to kind of help bring it to a close. So that yeah, topic so, that go ahead. Yeah, so so uh, you know, as as lots of people have been doing uh, during the pandemic, is spending more time at home, and and that leads to all sorts of new hobbies, rediscovered or 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 first discovery. 
So the, the fun question is, uh, what's your favorite board game? Yeah. Um, I'd be curious what our listeners have to say. If they want to comment, uh, we'll, we'll certainly welcome their their thoughts. So what's your yeah. what's your your answer to that? So my wife loves the game Clue, and then in fact the the '80s movie based on the game is a, a favorite of hers. I like it too. She loves it. Um, so we did play that over the holidays um, with her parents. Um, you know, so it's good kind of logic based game of uh, you know what again can you figure out based you know you, there, there's different strategies I think to figure out based on information you know and information you don't know you know who who committed the murder where and with what like that it was fun to revisit that game I hadn't played it in a long time but if if cards against humanity counts as a board game that's our favorite and and that's okay. a game. We have, uh, you know, we'll, we'll play that with um, not just friends, but also with my in-laws. You know, it's kind of raunchy. It's not a family game, but that's probably the game I have the most fun playing. That's a, that's, I, we actually haven't played that. So uh, maybe it's, maybe it's time. Our kids are getting older, so they're not a lot of, not a lot of secrets anymore, but it's not. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a family game if the family's up for it. So you want, you might, you want to read through those cards first and see if the kids yeah, are old enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, our, our family doesn't, doesn't hold back a whole lot. So <laughs> yeah. So I, I hate, I, I hate games that are, uh, I'm not a big fan of pure luck games. Like, you know, like we used to play shoots and ladders with the kids. It's just, just the roll of the die is what it is. Yeah. There's no strategy. Um, and then trivia games, like mm -hmm. I'm good with parts of trivia, like the science questions, but then it's like, what actor played in this? I'm like, I have no clue. I just, I'm yeah. going to lose that category every time. So R risk and monopoly are, were always favorites of mine, both classics. There was enough strategy involved that you can really think your way through the game. Um, monopoly, we don't play a whole lot anymore. I mean, my, my youngest used to play it so much. He would set up when he was, when he was tiny, he would set up stuffed animals and he'd have a four person game going all by himself. Um, wow. And he was sort of vicious again, you know, he really put himself in each role and he was vicious <laughs> and, um, but he could, he could also do the math like, like that, but on, on, on all the number on, on all the money. But uh, yeah, but we, you know, we've gotten to almost petty with monopoly where, um, I can stay in the game by making this trade, but if the trade will help you, so I'm not going to do it. So yeah. that, that that's kind of taking some of the fun out of it. But I, I would say if, if anybody's familiar with the game Apples to Apples, it's mm -hmm. it's a neat game where there's a an adjective card, and then everybody puts everybody has a noun card, a, a, a handful of noun cards, and they they put a noun card down, and then there's a judge that decides which noun best fits the adjective. Um, so it's, 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 it's fun. And, you know, there's a judge, it's very subjective. Um, but my daughter a few years ago made a flinchball family edition where yeah. it's, it's, it's basically both adjectives as well as nouns that really apply to us, whether it's inside jokes or it's favorite eateries or it's our own names. And, uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a really fun version of that game because we're, hmm. We're playing on sort of inside knowledge about the family. It's hard to play with other people because, but yeah. uh, for us, it, it uh, it's, it's probably my favorite. Uh, and just the fact that she put that much time and effort into it was was super cool. So that's a favorite. That of mine. is cool. 
That is cool. Um, we, we did play uh, a, a version of Monopoly over the holidays. It's called Winopoly. And so it's, 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 uh, it's uh, you know, instead of the traditional Monopoly properties, they are wine regions. And so we decided we were going to play, um, you know, the, the instructions for Monopoly or this game. Talk about a short version where everyone starts off. You randomly deal out a handful of properties just to get things going. And those were dealt out. And I noticed I was randomly given. I wasn't the dealer. I got the equivalent of Boardwalk and Park Place. I'm like, oh, good. I'm set. But then whoever in the family was dealing them out realized like, oh, I gave out too many cards. So then this is where it was a matter of ethics or stupidity on my part. I kind of randomly shuffled up the cards and gave a couple of back, a couple of them back, including Park Place. And then partway into the game, I thought, I should have kept those two top properties. Bordeaux. It was like Bordeaux and Champagne. I'm like, I mean, uh, yep. so I ended up losing the game. I'm like, oh, it's just a game. I don't know. But I would have been I better positioned if I just kept and hoarded those two. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think we might have given that away as a gift at one of our wine parties. Uh, I can't remember for sure. But we've we've had four or five different versions of Monopoly, including the Cars edition from the movie, the movie Cars. Uh-huh. When you know, the kids were really young. And uh, the Cheaters edition, which doesn't get a lot of play because nobody really trusts anybody. Um but you actually cheat and you know, it's like, well, if you get away with it, you get a bonus. And if you get yeah. caught, you get penalized. It's an interesting, it's an interesting. How, how, how do you cheat? You move your piece to oh, a place that didn't match the role. Cards and it's everything from steal money from another pe- person's pile to, <laughs> oh, to uh, yeah, switch properties with somebody. It's all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's all about whether you get caught or not uh, during your term. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's got, it got played a couple of times, but, uh, not, not too often, but, uh, yeah, I'll have to check out, uh, Wineopoly, but like I said, our, our family's kind of, uh, uh, gone against Monopoly. So I'm not sure adding wine is going to solve anything there. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, cool. Well, good. We'll look forward to playing cards against humanity with you sometime, Jamie. Yeah, Absolutely. Probably not an episode of uh, of Lean Whiskey. Um, no, but, uh, no, no, no. But in in, in, in person, someplace, sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. I guess that is. Uh, I guess that's it for this week for this episode. I should say. Yep. I think that's it. Well, we want to thank everybody for listening and hanging out with us here. Uh, if you want to check out uh, the past episodes, 24. Wow. We're up to episode 24. You can find everything at leanwhiskey.com. You can spell whiskey either of the two internationally recognized ways, and it will forward to my website, Lean Blog. If you also want, if you want show notes and links for this episode in particular, you can go to leanblog.org slash whiskey24. And I think you have to spell that K-E-Y-24. Or you can go to Jamie's website. Yep, at jflinch.com slash lean whiskey. You'll see all the episodes there as well as along with plenty of other things, including my, the rest of my blog posts. And, you know, we hope you look for us. If you're listening for the first time, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, um, all the major places you can find podcasts. I guess if you're listening to it, you've, 
managed to find us. So thank you. But please do subscribe. Yep. And in addition to subscribing, you know, please, please rate us, review us, ask us questions. Um, you know, no, these are things that not only help us make the show better, but help other people find it um, and, and gain access. You know, they don't have to listen. They all have that choice. But those rates and reviews and subscriptions help other people to find it. So uh, it really helps us out and helps them out as well. So we really appreciate any of that support you can give us. Yeah. And thank you to everybody who has rated or reviewed. And just one other thing I'm going to say, just from a technical standpoint, um, we, we've always recorded these through Zoom, but we recorded this episode through a different system I've been using called Riverside.fm, which um, hopefully leads to better audio quality, better video quality. Um, but, you know, Jamie, if we want to experiment again with a, a live episode, the system would allow us um, to line people up in advance to do a quote unquote call in to ask mm -hmm. a question. So there there are you know some things maybe we can continue um, experimenting with and playing around. But either way, it's always fun to do this. So thanks. Thanks for doing these podcasts. Yeah, thank you. And this is our our third calendar year of these episodes. Uh, Lots obviously happened since then, but uh, uh, it's, it's fulfilled the expectations of being a fun, ex fun experiment. And uh, um, you know, I, I've been better and better at taking my weekends off from work, but uh, and this is a Sunday night. This was always like, as we intended, hanging out with a friend, talking shop, having a drink. So yeah. cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Jamie.